The story of the holiday called Pesach, though perhaps mistranslated as Passover, is known to so many, and the Seder celebrating it is a touchstone of Jewish identity. But the story of the second Pesach, of Hezekiah's Pesach, is much less known. But the event is incredibly important to the history not only of the Jews, but the world. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 132, the Pesach of Isaiah and the Prism of Sancherev. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Passover is one of the words in the English language most affiliated with Judaism. It is taken to be an accurate translation of the Hebrew, which is Pesach. But what if it isn't? What if the word Pesach does not mean Passover, but rather the exact opposite? What if Isaiah can allow us to understand the true meaning of the word Pesach? What if our prophetic passage that we will discuss today teaches us that there is another Pesach in history that dramatically impacted the future of the world? And what if one of the greatest pieces of evidence for all this is an artifact that we can see in a museum today? In chapters 30 through 35, Isaiah addresses the coming of Assyria, the army of Sancherev, and that army's ultimate defeat. He warns Israel not to rely on Egypt as a counterbalancing power, that all salvation will only ultimately come from God. Thus, chapter 31, verse 1, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help, and stay on horses and trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. During the reign of the wicked king Ahaz, who has willingly taken on paganism in subjugation to Assyria, Isaiah predicts, in the beginning of chapter 32, that the future righteous reign of Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, will bring independence and salvation. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and ministers shall rule in judgment. At times during these chapters, Isaiah seems to speak of the redemptive eschatological era, which he hopes will dawn with Hezekiah. For example, chapter 30, verse 26, Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days, in the day that the Lord bindeth up the breach of his people. And at times, Isaiah speaks of redemptive events that have taken place in our own time, such as the opening of chapter 35, which describes the desert of the once barren holy land suddenly flourishing. He says, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. This, as Rabbi Yigal Ariel notes, is, of course, an absolutely accurate description of what has occurred in the land of Israel today. But in our talk, we will focus now on the fifth verse of chapter 31, which describes how not the Egyptians but the Almighty will ultimately be the source of Jerusalem's salvation. Here is what Isaiah says. As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also he will deliver it, and passing over he will preserve it. Or at least, That is one standard form of the English translation from the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the words are Ketsiporim ofot, like birds flying, Kein yagein Hashem tzvakot al Yerushalayim. So will the Lord of hosts shield Jerusalem. That is the first part of the verse, where God compares himself to a mother bird that will come in defense of her children that are in danger. But then the last portion of the verse in Hebrew uses the word Pesach, describing God as doing what a bird would do. Ganon vihitzil, defending also, he, God, will deliver it. Pasoach 
Himlit, which again, in line with how Pesach is often interpreted, is rendered here as God will pass over and preserve Jerusalem. But ladies and gentlemen, a mother bird would not pass over her children that are in danger. She would shield them, block them, attack those that are attacking them. The bird would, in other words, hover over her children, extending her wings over them, her protective shield over them. And that is actually exactly what Isaiah is saying here. The word Pesach does not mean Passover, but hover over. And that is also what occurred in the Exodus story in Egypt. That story is not about God skipping over Israelite homes during the plague of the firstborn. It is a tale of God hovering over the domiciles of his people, shielding them from the plague. Or as I often joke, Passover shouldn't be called Passover, it should be called hangover. God in Exodus speaks of a plague, a mashchit in Hebrew, which means a destroyer. And he promises that if Israel places the blood of the Paschal Lamb on their houses, then he, God, will dwell therein. And as he says in Exodus 12, 23, I will not allow the destroyer to enter your homes. The blood of the offering sanctifies the Israelite domiciles, thereby turning them into temples in miniature, where God's presence is made manifest. As Rabbi Yaakov Meidan of Yeshivat Haratzion tells us, the story of Pesach is a tale of the Shekhinah, God's presence, hovering over his children. Here is how he puts it, quote, It seems then that God did not pass over the houses of Israel in the sense that he skipped from one house to the next and refrained from acting upon them. To the contrary, he passed over them in the sense that his Shekhinah hovered over them. The act of destruction he handed over to an agent, and it was he the destroying agent who smote the firstborn of Egypt. But God was not prepared to hand over to an agent the task of protecting his firstborn son Israel, so that the destroyer should not enter through his doorway. He himself, as it were, hopped from one Israelite house to another, stood over them, and prevented the destroyer from entering and causing harm. The paschal blood placed on the doorposts of the houses was like sacrificial blood, which in later generations would be placed on the corner of the altar. Every Israelite house achieved the status of an altar, and the Shekhinah rested upon it. End quote. God, in other words, hovered, pasach, over the homes of the Israelites in Egypt. And God, Rabbi Meidan further argues, was pasoach. He hovered over Jerusalem in the age of Assyria and of Hezekiah. The salvation of Jerusalem from Sancherev, king of Assyria, was a second Pesach. But this raises a question. Why does God in Isaiah choose the bird metaphor? Why not merely say, as an exodus, that he would shield Israel? For Rabbi Meidan, Isaiah's prophecy is referring back to a previous verse in the book 10.14, where Sancherev is depicted as saying that, My hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. Thus, God, in response now, in our chapter, refers to himself as one who protects the baby birds that are the children of Israel. Perhaps, but there is another explanation to the question of why God uses the metaphor of a mother bird, an explanation which others have noted, and it draws on an incredible artifact in the British Museum, a prism of Sancherev, king of Assyria, a proclamation of his victories, a prism that describes the besieging of Jerusalem. A parallel prism, also from Sancherev, sits in Jerusalem's Israel Museum. Professors Fant and Reddish, in their excellent book, Lost Treasures of the Bible, gives us the background to the British Museum's artifact. Quote, 
Between 704 and 681 BCE, Sancherov conducted a total of eight campaigns against various rebellious states under his control, a war that he attributed to inspiration from his principal god Ashur. His third campaign, which involved the siege of Jerusalem, is of particular interest to biblical scholars. This historic siege is clearly described in one of the most significant archaeological discoveries in the history of biblical research, the Taylor Prism. The six-sided prism was a foundational record discovered at Nineveh, likely buried originally beneath the arsenal at Nebi Yunus. The writing is typical of Assyrian annals, blending fact with ideological propaganda. It was acquired in 1830 by Colonel R. Taylor, British Consul General at Baghdad, and was purchased by the British Museum from Taylor's widow in 1855. Even though it is the latest of the annals of Sancherov, seven other prisms have been discovered with essentially the same information. It has long been regarded as the standard inscription of his campaigns. One of these additional prisms, found at Nineveh and dated to CA 694 BCE, is on display in room 10b of the British Museum. It contains the standard record of Sancherov's first five campaigns, including the third campaign, which involved the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of Lachish, although curiously the latter is not mentioned. End quote. And the professors add that, quote, the Taylor prism remains today as one of the most celebrated objects in the great collection of antiquities in the British Museum, as well as a vital piece of evidence for the history of the biblical period, end quote. Thus, ladies and gentlemen, as I have mentioned in a previous episode, we can look today at this relic of Assyria, another ancient tyrant's proclamation of his victory over the Jews. And here, citing the translation provided by Fanton Rennish, is one paragraph from the prism. Sancherov proclaims, As for Hezekiah the Judean, I besieged 46 of his fortified walled cities and surrounding smaller towns, which were without number. Using packed-down ramps and applying battering rams, infantry, attacked by mines, breaches, and siege machines, I conquered them. I took out 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, cattle, and sheep without number, and counted them as spoil. He himself I locked up within Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage. I surrounded him with earthworks and made it unthinkable for him to exist by the city gate. His cities which I had despoiled, I cut off from his land and gave them to Nitinti, king of Ashdod, Padi, king of Ekron, and Silibel, king of Gaza, and thus I diminished his land. This is the proclamation of a tyrant, words from the most powerful man in the Middle East. And as many note, one sentence here on the prism stands out, Sancherov's description of his besieging of Hezekiah. He himself I locked up within Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage. Thus, it has been quite cogently suggested that the omniscient Almighty, knowing well what the smug Assyrian king proclaimed, is in the book of Isaiah taking this very metaphor and turning it on its head, saying, You, Sancherov, claim to have trapped a helpless bird, but the parent of that bird will descend. The parent of that bird will shield its child. The parent of that bird will destroy its enemy. And we know what happened, ladies and gentlemen, from the book of Kings, and Isaiah will soon describe it again, the destruction of the Assyrian army at the gates of Jerusalem. The story of the holiday called Pesach, though perhaps mistranslated as Passover, is known to so many, and the Seder celebrating it is a touchstone of Jewish identity. But the story of the second Pesach, of Hezekiah's Pesach, is much less known. But the event is incredibly important to the history not only of the Jews, but the world. The historian William McNeil has argued that the ultimate refusal of Hezekiah to give in to Sancherov provides us with the ultimate counterfactual of history. He writes, quote, What if Sancherov, king of Assyria, had conquered Jerusalem 
in 701 BC when he led his imperial army against a coalition of Egyptian, Phoenician, Philistine, and Jewish enemies and handily defeated them all. This, it seems to me, is the greatest might have been of all military history. This may be an odd thing to say about an engagement that never took place, yet Jerusalem's preservation from attack by Sancharov's army shaped the subsequent history of the world far more profoundly than any military action I know of. End quote. In other words, no Hezekiah, no monotheism. And McNeil concludes by reflecting that, quote, most historians are so much shaped by the world's subsequent religious history as to be unable or unwilling to recognize how fateful the Assyrian withdrawal in 701 BCE turned out to be. And McNeil adds, but, at least for me, pondering how a small company of prophets and priests in Jerusalem interpreted what happened outside the city walls in 701 BCE, and reflecting on how their views came to prevail so widely in later times, is a sobering exercise of historical imagination. So much depended on so few, believing so wholly in their one true God, and in such bold defiance of common sense. End quote. To which I would add, indeed. And so I would suggest to you all, ladies and gentlemen, next time you are in Jerusalem, go to the Israel Museum and look at the copy there of the prism of Sancherev of Assyria. Then, if it's a nice day, take a long walk from the museum, from the new city, into the old. Go to the middle of the Jewish quarter, where you will see what is called the Broad Wall, a remnant of Hezekiah's own fortifications of Jerusalem. As you look, realize you are standing near where Sancherev's forces once stood, and where Israel experienced a second Pesach. Ponder, then, the religious and historical implications of what it means to be part of an eternal Jewish people standing in a sacred city at the site of what once appeared to be Hezekiah's last stand. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.